This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Brian Jeffrey Maxson, professor of history at East Tennessee State University, to talk about his recent book, Early Modern Europe, Facts and Fictions, out this year, 2023, with Bloomsbury Academic. Hi, Brian, and welcome to the show. Hello, Yana. Thank you for having me. Ah, great. How are you? You having a nice morning in Johnson City? (laughs) I am. It's a bit overcast here, but the, the sun is coming up. It'll be a beautiful day. Brilliant. And I'm guessing you're closing in on the end of the semester? <laughs> yes, I finished teaching last week. Uh, I have an exam and then uh, many papers to grade this week. Many, many papers. Excellent. Um, which is a time when you, it's a rewarding time when you can see how much you taught. Yes. Um, grading is, yeah. is, I don't think grading is the favorite part of this job for anybody, but Grading is its own form of rewarding, I'd say. You can see the lessons that you've taught with your students and you can see them grow. Yeah, that is, and that's right. That's the, that is a really glass half full way to look at marking exams and papers. So it is, is, but it's, it's also a testament to the work that they put in and the, the efforts and the, and the talent that they have. Yeah, you know, and they work so hard. Uh, we can laugh about it, but we really, they do deserve our full attention. And like, uh, like you know, that, that is a very important part of our job. Yes, it is. So, well done. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's all right. I, I don't know why I cannot stop sounding sarcastic because I don't mean that. I really mean, I really mean it. I really think it's important, but uh it's just also, you know, there's that time after paper number 10 when you find yourself writing, yikes, and you're just like, no, I have to take a break. <laughs> I break them up. I have um, I have a number of, I know how many total I'm going to get in, and then I break them up so that I can do a bit each day. So I'll be done by Friday. That is wise. All right. Hey, so other than now I know that you're a very uh, thoughtful and careful grader, tell me a little bit more about yourself. So you're a Renaissance Italian historian, yeah, it brought, like writ large. What's your specialization? Um, 
My research has traditionally focused on 15th century Europe, especially Italy. Um, I'm very, very interested in cultural history. I'm interested in the intersections between literature, um, political and social history in particular, as well as uh, material culture. I'm very interested in how conception, the 15th century for me is a unique century in that it's divided along historiographies in that if you're studying the 1450s and you're in France, you're a medieval historian. But if you're studying the 1450s and you're on the Italian peninsula, you're a Renaissance historian and you go to different conferences and you publish with different presses and different Mm -hmm. journals. And so I'm very interested in uh, breaking down those sorts of conceptions into a unified whole. All right. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's nice. it's, a, it's a perfect lead in kind of to talking about this series, because the idea that a certain, you know, this this time where like the, the broader geographical implications of Europe, right, where you have a culture and a civilization that a, a society that's united in some ways, but still the divisions of um academics and kind of the the way history was written in the 18th, 19th, 19th century, really, and 20th century can affect um, those stories so much, really leads into the why this fact and fiction series is a good idea. Yes. Um, I think a lot of these assumptions are, as you stated, they were created in the 19th century during, I mean, during a period in which nationalism was, was very prized. This was about finding the history of the Italian nation or the French nation and what was unique about them. And I think those sorts of narratives impose later conceptions onto a much, much more fragmented um, past and a past that's much more connected than it suggests. Um, the facts and fiction series, um, yes, this particular this particular book has, um, has a bit of that. And then other books in the series uh, approach facts and fictions from all sorts of places and all sorts of times. So I think it's a, it's, it's a neat, it's a neat thing. Yeah. I mean, the, this, the series treats kind of big ideas, the Viking Shakespeare, you know, like and the civil war and kind of how that, what that comes to mean and kind of, you know, what we, what, what we all know about Shakespeare. You it's know. about, um, Yes, and this is something that I that I thought a lot about when I was putting putting this this particular book together was the things that we think we know versus the things that we know, which are it's a very very hard distinction to make because when you think you know something, we don't often reflect upon is that true? Is that something that I learned as a child that I've just always assumed was accurate, or is that something that I know is true that I've read about in a reliable source? And so my particular intervention in this series was thinking about from from teaching for almost 20 years the sorts of things that my students think that they know when they when they arrive in my class on Europe from 1300 to 1500 or Europe from 1500 to 1700 and some of the things that I really work with them about um, why do we think we know that and is that an accurate reflection of the past or is reading the present into the past mm-hmm. um reading the present into the past reading 50 years ago into uh, the past reading essentially sure, the past, sure. right? i mean not just the present but also any period after 
1600 into the past. Yes. Yeah, there's, and I don't want to get deep into this, but there's this idea of memory studies where we realize that from from a conception, um, what we what we call the past, we write ourselves yeah, into. Of course, right? um, you know, they, whether whether it's someone writing down a speech they're mm-hmm. hearing um, to someone talking about that speech two thousand years later, sure, or whatever. Thousands is a lot of years, but. I, I'm trying to think if that ever happened, but you know what I mean? Like, what do we remember about Agincourt, right? Or or the reception of these sorts of ideas, their creation, um, and then the reception of later interpretations. So instead of thinking about the 15th century as the 15th century, thinking about it in terms of how did people in the 1800s think about the 1400s or 15th century, and then how does that impact what we do today and what we think about today? I find that, um, particularly in my current work, uh, I find that absolutely fascinating the way that people, the priorities of people in the 1800s and the 1900s and how that makes us think about what we think we know, um, what we're interested in about the past, what we're not interested in about the past, the sort of assumptions we bring to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what even constitutes a history and what that means is something, um, you know, that I think as historians, we spend a lot of time thinking about, kind of, you know, from from the, like, what 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 matters here and why do I think sure. it matters? What's is it some, <laughs> I just know. had this discussion with, uh, with my students in the 1300 to 1500 class. Um, many of my students assume that I'm going to present them with a traditional political narrative of, of people waging war or people making political decisions and changing of boundaries and making peace. And I purposely do that last. Um, the entire class of that point is <laughs> thematic. We start talking about the lives of women in the past. Um, we talk about material culture in the past. We talk about literature in the past. We talk about conceptions of political organization about assumptions about health and about uh, the way the natural world works or about philosophy. And it's only after lots and lots of discussions and readings in that, that I then end with a, a political narrative of, that sets up the, the Italian war starting in 1494 and gives a 200 year backdrop to that culminating in how these particular wars are going to differ from the previous fighting over the Italian peninsula. And the whole point of it is to make them make them think about what is important about the past and why is it important. Um, and I'm very open with them that I don't I don't have an answer to that. But it's we assume that the leaders are what are important. And we assume that the high politics are important. But then I I challenged them to think about, well, when we read about the, we read this micro history, for example, um, what role did the, did the king have in that person's life? What role did the latest treaty have in their life? And so what, what matters about the past? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you'll find, you know, your students are, are really aware of the fact that 
we fashion religion, cultural, like what, what their culture is, what family mm-hmm. means, what gender is so much more important to them as people yes. than the particular president. Right. Exactly. That. And that's, that's what I, that's what we talked about is when you think about your own life. Um, and then I, I no. So it's, it's a fun conversation to have with them because they're, they're very, very bright. So. That's very cool. Yeah, right on. Um, so I want to talk about a couple of the fictions in more detail in a minute. But so just to answer this on a kind of a broader level, how did you select these myths? Like, and sometimes, you know, they are, they're myths, like straight up, <laughs> where did this, yeah. how did you decide what you were going to talk about? Um, so I think this is a collection very much of, I mean, it reflects me. So it reflects some of the things that I I know best because a a book like this, you have to, in my mind, I needed to have something that I, it it wasn't a a book that I wanted to do a a ton of research to establish this myth. So I wanted to know something about this before I started. And then I thought about, I thought about grading. I thought about my, my midterms and my, my final exams over the years and, some of the things that I try very hard to get my students to reevaluate. So um, things like that, the 15th century is a story of overturning the flat earth myth. There's a ton of scholarship that, that my book relies upon that shows that that's just not, it's not what people thought or um, the idea that the Pope was somehow the puppet master of all of Europe until the modern age. Um, I, I try very hard with my students to tell them the Pope probably would have liked to have had that power. But, but I mean, in this class, I mean, the Pope's in exile. The Pope flees in disguise at one point. It's just not – the Pope has power, and um, but not like that. Um, a book like this, it's – I tried to think of things that I could nuance that um, – because something like this, it's hard to have nuance in it because you are the point of the book is to dispel a myth or to challenge a myth. Um, but I tried to pick things that were kind of correct, but not really. And so to try to make readers read it and then think about, think about does that myth take some of this part a little bit too far and what, what an accurate or a more accurate portrayal would be would be to think about it in a more complicated way. So a mixture of me and um, my experiences with a lot of the, <laughs> a lot of the myths I encounter. Um, I have to tell you, anybody who has ever taught this period will open up your table of contents and be like, yes, 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 yes. Recognize that, recognize that. And um, our readers, um, and I recommend, I highly recommend this book. Let me say that off the book. It's really well written. It's a joy to read. And it's 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 fun. It's a really fun way to go through the past. So um, definitely all of you ever, listeners, please give this one, a, give this one, spend some more time on this. But um, these are things that people will be like, hey, wait, people didn't believe the world was flat. I mean, that is just so pervasive that um, there's, I can, a, a lot of it just feels like, well, of course, too, when I am looking through what you you cover and it, there are things that really kind of need to be fixed. Um, but there was something about most of your subjects as well, where I just wanted to know why. So 
uh, why do we think this? So let, let's talk about kind of the first thing you brought up, which was actually in my list of the first thing on my list I wanted to talk about as well, which is Christopher Columbus, right? This pervasive, at least maddeningly pervasive idea that people believe the world was flat right up until Christopher Columbus failed to fall off it. And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I want to talk about this. Like, so that's basically the idea. What, what's actually, what's, what is in fact the, the case? Um, um, well, Columbus becomes a hero, a 19th century hero of secularism and progress. And so, um, and it's, 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 and so part of that story is he, he needs to have an antagonist against which to, to foil. And so Columbus, who was himself an extremely pious man, uh, who was, I mean, pious in that he was a, he was a Catholic. This is a religious man believes he has a religious mission, um, becomes instead somebody who is triumphing over religion and backward thinking. Um, so I, I don't know what else to say. And other than that, he becomes a, he becomes a hero of secularism. And the, one of the fun things about that particular chapter was finding these 19th century stories that create this myth. And uh, I was guided to those by, um, by a particular book that's cited in the, the further reading about the myth of the flat earth. And some of them are so over the top. Um, the one in particular that I have a lot of excerpts from is it has him it talks about like his cleft chin and about his handsome face and about, and it's just this wild fictional. Um, and it's, I, it's so, it's so divorced from the historical sources. Um, but when you have those sorts of, of, of stories, um, they be, it becomes a compelling, compelling myth. Uh, the other thing about Columbus that I'd say is even during Columbus today is, is a is a controversial figure, um, and in the 19th century he was a controversial figure. Um, sometimes for the same sorts of things um, as we find extremely, um, I mean, disgusting today, but also for for other reasons, other 19th century priorities. Um, you can read about controversies over Leif Erikson and Columbus and who has primacy of discovery of the American continents in the 19th century. They're having those sorts of debates. Um, again, for some of the same sorts of reasons that people have had those in the 20th and even into the 21st century, but also different sorts of um, regionalisms in the United States about the importance of Leif Erikson is a New England hero, um, prejudices against Catholics and Italians um, that at least are more muted in the 21st century were not in the 19th century. And so the idea of having somebody who is both Catholic and Italian uh, as, a, as part of the national story, the United States is right. Um, it's a, it's a, fascinating, a fascinating series of, of questions. Yeah, this process, right? So we need Columbus needs to be important. So we can't so we so he has to have done something important. And what we get the Columbus from the record, right? The Columbus from the narrative is kind of a bumbling kind of failure. I mean, like 
a failure is a bit harsh, but even just getting the, we're like, he went and he made Ferdinand and Isabella give him ships. And it's like, well, they gave him three very small ships. Great. So we have this historical record of a really underwhelming character and he's got to be important. So he has to have done something amazing. He has to have been bold. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, ultimately he, he spends years trying to convince courts of Europe to fund ships based upon calculations that are wrong. I mean, why was he not proving the earth was round? (laughs) He was, he was advocating for a planet that was much, much smaller than it actually was. And so the people he's arguing against would rightfully tell him that. Um, And eventually for a whole range of reasons, um, none of which are dispelling the flat earth. Um, the court of Spain decides to fund him, but fund him at a level that basically they have nothing to lose. I mean, the investment is not that big. And if it's a disaster, then they don't lose much. But if the man turns out to be right, then there's a lot to gain. So uh, Columbus, I guess for, for, for listeners of this, I would, I would tell you that he is, he is rightfully controversial today. He was controversial already in the 19th century. And out of that controversy and out of those sorts of uh, sorts of disagreements has emerged this this sort of myth of things that he did that they're just not inaccurate. Wildly inaccurate. But then, you know, as you just mentioned, that isn't why he matters. He matters because we, he matters because Columbus Day can sit next to St. Patrick's Day. He matters. Yes. So, you know, this is this is um, I would just say there, there's a it's a fascinating story. of that's It's an American story. It takes us away from the study of of the 15th or the 16th centuries. And it becomes a story of the United States in the 1800s and the 1900s. Um, much, much more than it is a story of the past itself. All of this myth is a story of the 1800s and 1900s and the assumptions and arguments people are making and the prejudices that they possess um, much, much more than it is anything to do with the the pre-modern past. And that's, I think that's a theme in this book is that so many of these chapters, these are stories of 18 and 1900 assumptions and prejudices much, much more than it is about these people sometimes the people acted worse <laughs> than the, the miss the the miss state and sometimes they they weren't as they acted differently i guess is what i'd say yeah so in the 19th century it's one thing now there's this this discussion of should it be columbus day or indigenous yes. people's day but it's still just totemic of something much broader yes yeah. absolutely and it continues to be and that is but that debate again—that's—that's the debate about us. That's a debate about um, about the values that we possess and the the ways that we the meaning of the past. Um, what 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 significance a holiday has for talking about the past? Uh, but that doesn't have anything to do with the 15th century. No. Um, so then, I mean, using this kind of these same sets of questions, let's look at the idea that the Pope was um, like virtually omnipotent, right? This masterful person who, to be clear, does write um, write a bull separating the world in half. Yes. Uh, right. Yep. But that's meaningless. What's going on there? What's up? What about the power of the church? Um, the power of the church 
see, my read of this would be, and this is, I, I teach in a largely Protestant area. And so I think that if I taught somewhere else, I might encounter different sorts of myths. Uh, but this is a Reformation myth about the power of the medieval papacy, about the, the immorality and corruption of the medieval papacy and the assigning of, of power to a figure that he, he never possessed. If we move into the, the latter part of the early modern period, when we get into the 16th and the 17th century, we can talk about papal reach in a way that didn't exist before. But when we're talking about the 14th century papacy, the 15th century papacy, uh, even the the papacy of the early part of the 16th century. I mean, these are just, they're figures who would like to have the power they often are given. <laughs> but but I would just, I would challenge, I mean, in 1434, the Pope flees in disguise in a riot in Rome and flees to Florence where he's a guest um, funded by the Medici family who are also, uh, who are also taking possession of the city. I mean, this is, how does this man possibly tell the, a distant ruler, this is what you need to do, let alone a, a small community, a rural community? How does the rural community even know that that's happening without, in, in an age where there's no newspaper, where there's no podcast, <laughs> where there's, where the, the news is going to travel to via word of mouth or maybe some copy of a proclamation but it's it would be it's impossible until until you have other means of communication now when you have print when you have cheap means of paper so that you can print large copies of things well then that allows you to have a more of an idea of uniformity that this is what officially is believed and therefore this is what we need to believe it allows you to have that conception and it allows you to have an idea to enforce it. But before that, it just doesn't make any sense. No, it makes no sense. And even once you have something like a written proclamation, there still might be a copy and who can read yes. it. And so exactly. local voices are going to be so much more important there. But so why, what, what is it? Why are we so scared? Like this, does this reflect a terrible fear of a great papist world? Is that? <laughs> why do we continue to cling to it today um that i'm not other than that it gets ingrained into into ways of viewing the past and so much of what we view the past we assume is i mean this has a very very long run this 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 competing versions of the past between different different denominations of christians i mean that that had continues well into the 20th century. And so those sorts of yeah. myths are continue on well into the 20th century. And oh please, please, Jana. Well so my question then, so not it's it's that uh perhaps, you know, when we have we're we, we invent the Renaissance, like in we being, you know, human like Western Europeans and Americans. Uh, like Anglophone speakers or what have you, but no, that's not it either. Modern modern people create the idea of the Renaissance, right? Which is a, against uh, like this this blowing back against the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages of the Church. Like that's enough. Now that that exists and this gets replicated, is that what's um, happening? 
yes, I think I think it becomes another foil against which we can we can argue for our progress and our superiority. I mean, the 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 the, the Pope was a religious figure, but now with the removal of this all-powerful figure here in whether we're in the 18th century or the 19th century with 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 their removal um we have now moved forward in time we've moved forward we've progressed um another narrative that i tried very hard to get into this book and then didn't was the idea of progress and this this that's so important for it's another that i see often in my classes and underlies some of these like the the idea that that Columbus is triumphing over a flat earth is an idea of progress that we here have progressed to a better state. And the idea of overthrowing a papal autocrat is an idea that we have progressed to a more secular and perfect state, but it's very hard. It's very hard to get readings to, to, to just to show this idea of progress or to talk about these ideas of progress, anything but an extremely abstract way. Um, but those are also the early modern period and ideas of progress were very, very different than we possess, where we talk about, we often say, well, technology and science or even secularism are, are, are wedded to progress. Things are better because they are, there's a better machine or they're better because we have a more logical way to think about something. But medieval and Renaissance and early modern people didn't, didn't view the world that way. I mean, it wasn't, um, oftentimes if you were thinking about time at all, you were thinking about the return of Christ down the road. You were thinking about things were, were getting worse as you approached the Armageddon much more than they were getting better as uh, the natural sciences became more fine-tuned at, at um, talking about the world. Yeah, and this the idea of progress. I see this embedded in all the stories um, here, and this idea, um, which is a thing we moderns really love that idea that we we finally have the truth, <laughs> and if <laughs> we're good, and uh, if you you know, and you can point out that in five hundred years, people will look back at us and find us equally ridiculous is not something our students they're like, well, but science, right? Um, and so, I mean, I, I see this with the idea that all pre-modern women are basically chattel, right? Or um, the scientific revolution it creates all knowledge. Yes. Um, this is also, this is something I talk about a lot with my students as well, is I'm trying to, to unpack this idea of progress and where it comes from. But what's, what's very interesting to me about the idea of progress is this is something that's, that's, it's an axiom of popular culture. This is, it's built into the ways that we view the world. It's, it's, it's things that we don't, we take for granted that we, we don't think about. And so now when you look at popular culture, it's still there. I mean, I still, I still get a lot of comments about progress. And so this happened because it was better. And they, there was the, the Renaissance happened. Renaissance means that there was more technology because technology is better. And that's a, that's a built-in assumption about progress and what that means. But then, I mean, I invite people to turn on 
uh, any sort of streaming platform, to look at movies that come out, to look at novels that come out, and just the amount of dystopia, the amount of this this just a post-apocalyptic stuff that is there and that becomes extremely popular. Um, and that's a very, very different view of the of the future. That's a that's a view of the future that things are getting worse, that things are slowly inching their way to this sort of place where everything ends. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but it's it's an interesting rejection of that enlightenment inheritance that science will make things better and that logic will make things better. And I don't know if uh, I don't know if that sticks. I don't know if we 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 become a society that that for a whole range of reasons no longer believes in things getting better, um, but instead begins to view them as getting worse. Um, but I I I. I see that. And I think I see that in my own lifetime. I think I see, uh, I don't, a lot of this, this stuff, I, I just don't see it being as popular. And maybe it was, I mean, I, but 30 years ago, the, the, a landscape dominated by this is what happens after things have ended. But, but then again, I mean, you think about all of the post post-apocalyptic stuff from Cold war and you, so maybe it's, Maybe it's a continuation of the same. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm trying to kind of pinpoint this as well. I mean, definitely, right, our, when we're talking about the early modern world, looking for the apocalypse, it's all about to end. But I don't know how old you are, but I remember watching The Day After. No, exactly. In the 80s. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, I there's there's lots and lots of, of films like that. I just, and I, so it's, is it the, am I seeing... Am I seeing the, we have a greater quantity of media than we did 30 years ago? And so everything is, is, is it blown up or is it a, a shift? And there's, I mean, there's lots and lots of people that study those sorts of trends and which isn't. Yeah. I'm I, sure. Other, other specialists. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. People whose uh, specialty is much closer to the present than mine. Yeah. <laughs> which is not hard, right? No. <laughs> You know, um, sure. And I think, you know, we have the thing, too, where we're looking at um, uh, the a recent past, our past with nostalgia. And there's there's something about, you know, nostalgia that ties into with the idea of how we remember things. Yes, of course. And that's um, this gets this gets back to where we started our conversation. But what we think we know versus what we know we know. And so what I what I think I see, which is absolutely what this is, um, is this sort of shift away from these ideas of progress but uh, it's distinctly possible that that researching that and looking at scholarship by people who do that or trained to do that sort of work um maybe a very very different picture emerges there yeah i'm not sure uh... and i think i would just say that this this book is is an attempt by somebody who studies this sort of stuff to try to make an accessible entry point um, into just a list of things that are, this is what some of us assume. And I I include, I can remember assuming these things. Um, And so that some of us assume that, that over the course of, I mean, 20 years with this stuff, it, it's just not, 
it just isn't that way. There's so many of these things too. I remember assuming as well. I mean, the idea that like women are so much better off now than they used to be, and right, what yes. that means. <laughs> I heard I heard a talk uh, last week where it's about it's so this scholar is going is trying to write a synthesis of northern Italian places. So these are places associated with the Italian Renaissance. We'll just call it Italian Renaissance. So during the Italian Renaissance, there are enough women as rulers that it becomes hard to argue about their rarity. I mean, and the amount of power and the type of power that these women are, are wielding, both of economic or political or social power. I mean, not not behind the scenes sorts of power, because sometimes we say, well, women had power, but it was soft power. And yes, they do wield soft power, but they also wield hard power. I mean, power in positions, they are the person in charge. If you want to deal with this place, this is who, and people, they, that's, that's just how it is. And it's these assumptions from, again, it's these assumptions from much, much later looking back on the past that have very different views about women that say that, oh, that, that never happened. There was one or two very, very strange exceptions, but otherwise it was always men in position of power. That's just not the case. Um, when you look at women, uh, women from, from everyday ordinary women all the way up to the, to the heights of power, they're, they are, they're there, they're present, they're wielding that. And, that chapter, one of the challenges I had was I didn't want, I didn't want to take that too far. Is that medieval Renaissance and early modern Europe are extremely misogynistic times. I mean, there, there's, I mean, full stop. But that misogyny does not then mean that women were prevented from doing all doing variety of things. There's, it's a more complicated. Uh, it's a more complicated picture that's different than the one that we see in the 19th century or the 18th century or the 20th century or today. Right. You know, which takes us back actually to before we started taping our conversation about Taylor Swift. It, does Taylor Swift demonstrate the, the, the superior position of women modern american culture i would argue probably not but, she, but it's, she is. it's it's another it's a complicated it's a complicated question with a complicated answer right i mean in that you have somebody who is filling a role that has been open to women without question pop star is a women can do that and women can do that well but then she she does that and then she combines a lot of other things with it she combines social and economic and political influence in ways that are exactly the same as, as people in, in positions that aren't open or that, that are open to women, but haven't done of the stereotype as being open to women. And so I think, um, I just, I see nuance. All the way through, of course, which is, uh, you know, but it was kind of the beauty of what of of doing history, right? And reading about the past and thinking about these things and talking about them and teaching them is there's so much nuance and we can talk about it forever. Um, um, the a myth that's impossible to put in here that that also could have been included is is the the myth that people that are dead are simpler than us and are honest. Um, and this is something I, can, I <laughs> yeah. mean that. 
just because someone's been dead for 500 years does not mean that they were honest. They very well could have been lying to you. People were liars then. They're liars now. People were honest then. People are honest now. I mean, they're, they're people. And the motivations that they had were just as complicated as the motivations that we have. And the, the beliefs that they had were just as complicated as ours are. And the, the sorts of, they were different. The things they believed were different. The doubts that they had were different. The prejudices they had were in some cases the same, but in many cases were different. And it's, it's very easy to read words on a page and simplify them rather than allowing them to be the three-dimensional people that we allow ourselves to be and we allow our, our, the people in our circles to be. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this, um, because there's this idea to make everyone um, kind, good, sweet, yes. but also, but also society is really like dark and, you know, like absolute rule is everywhere and people are dying of the plague. Yeah. There's a lot of, I don't think I didn't do um, the plague. I did not, um, I didn't include here just because um, I thought about doing the plague as well. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was a little early. Um, although there's a lot of things in here that are 14th, 15th century. Um, but I didn't know what myth I would, I would work with, with the plague. Um, the idea that people in the past when the plague happened had no idea. And they just, they cooked up these very, very, I mean, just ludicrous explanations and they were powerless in the face of it. And that is true. There are some weird ideas about it. <laughs> I mean, stuff that you think, how did, how did you come up with that? <laughs> but then, but then there's also, there's also quite things that we don't find that, that unusual. They have an idea that this spreads from people to people. They have an idea that if you can stop people from coming into your proximity, you're not going to get sick. Um, they don't have an idea of germ theory or, or ideas about like infections or about viral transmission, but they know that these are symptoms of it and that they know that these things happen, these are the impacts, and they know that that... So they have... How they explain it is, is very different. How they get there is very different. But for a lot of them where they reach is not that different. And I don't, having lived through a pandemic, I didn't, uh, nothing on the scale of what the Black Death was, obviously, but I never, I didn't, I didn't pretend to understand the, the science behind a lot of the recommendations that were made to me or the, um, of what was happening and why this particular virus was so much worse than others. I, that's not what I do. Um, and so I did the recommendations that were advised to me and I, I read a bit about it in maybe in the newspaper and I don't, so how I got to that conclusion, I don't think I couldn't have told you the science underneath it either. And so these medieval people, these Renaissance people are reaching that conclusion and they also, that's just what, that's the best way to avoid it. Yeah. All right. Somehow I feel like this actually is a great place to pull, to kind of wind our conversation up. That, and we've been chatting for quite a while and you are a busy man. As we discussed, you got to go back to, you got to go back to work. You have to go give an exam. 
So uh, let's just, I've got one, one more question before we wind up, which is, uh, what are you working on now? Um, right now, I am, I'm working on two different things. I have an, an article project where I'm looking at an invective. So this is a, a text written in the 15th century that seeks to attack somebody else. And what I'm interested there is how that relates to a culture of vendetta where you have, when someone dishonors you or your family, violence ensues. I mean, that is the, that's an assumption. And so I'm curious as to when you, if somebody insults you with words, it's a very, it's an ephemeral action. It ends. I say something mean to Yana, she's offended, but then the words are gone. The memory of them remains, the, the feeling remains, but the words themselves are gone. If I write and publish a text that attacks somebody else, that's permanent. And so I'm curious as to how that permanency interacts with a culture of honor and dishonor. And then I'm also writing a new book in which I try to explore the idea of the Italian Renaissance in the United States. Um, what I'm particularly interested in is the United States in the narrative of Western civilization argues that the Italian Renaissance ended the medieval world. The ideas of the Italian Renaissance get passed on to Northern Protestants. Those Northern Protestants then colonize parts of what are now the United States and set a foundation for the United States as a country. But as an origin story, it traces its origins to the Roman Republic, then the Italian Renaissance, and then through from the Italian Renaissance into the United States. Um, and so I'm interested in why that decision, how that came to be. How did um, people in the 19th and the early 20th century come to see Italy as an essential component in the story of, in the, uh, the, the myths, the national myths of the United States? And I'm especially interested in how did people before that idea was created, and that idea didn't exist before really the late 19th and early 20th century. So if I was writing, or if I was thinking here during the American Civil War or the, the period right after, and I don't have that Western civilization idea to think about the past, how did I think about the Italian peninsula? And how did I think about the, the very, very ancient origin, the older origins of um, the United States as a country. So a project that seeks to bring together what I usually do, which is Italian Renaissance stuff um, with American history. Uh, ultimately, I'm very interested to be able to answer, uh, my Italian friends will ask me why I study Italy. Um, since I'm not Italian, I, did, I grew up in a rural place. I teach in a place that does not have a sizable Italian community. And so why do I study Italy? Why was I hired to teach Italian Renaissance stuff? Um, and so that's, that's what this book seeks to offer some kind of an answer to. Oh, I can see some connections with this as well. And kind of the, I, what, what is, what is entertaining you intellectually right now? I see that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, indeed. What I, what I find very interesting right now. Wonderful. Brian, thank you so much for a really enjoyable conversation. Um, based on the book, although we did go a little farther than its, uh, its covers, but thanks so much for joining me. It's been lovely. 
Well, thank you very much for having me. This has been a, a delight. Wonderful. All right. Until next time.